Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Chloe Coburn. Chloe leads the Open Philanthropy Project's strategy for investing in criminal justice policy and practice reforms. Their goal is to substantially reduce incarceration while maintaining public safety. Chloe has previously worked for the ACLU, a civil rights law firm, and courts for Judge Sifton of the Eastern District of New York. She holds degrees from Harvard University and Harvard Law School. She's also one of the most passionate and intelligent people I know, and I'm very happy that she's working on this issue. In today's episode, we lay out the problem of mass incarceration in the United States, open philanthropy's approach to criminal justice reform, its importance relative to other problems like global poverty and factory farming, the role of rehabilitation, deterrence, and why we think that punishment should not play a role in our criminal justice system. This is a topic that's near and dear to me, and Chloe is the most informed person that I know working on this, so I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Chloe, can you just start by saying like how you came to your current beliefs? So, and beliefs is a, it's, it's a broad question. Yeah. So like big picture and then specifically in the work that you're doing now. Um, so I've worked on this issue being criminal justice reform for 15 years. Um, as soon as I got to law school, it's hard to know actually what happened, but as I recall it, I was immediately interested in this topic and that was 15 years ago and I've just um, been working on it since as a law student, as a litigator, policy advocate, and now in this role at Open Philanthropy. Um, in that time, I've read a lot of books and articles, had a lot of late night discussions, given a lot of deep thought to these questions. And um, uh, I also am informed by my sort of you know, family history. My parents are journalists. My uncles are journalists. My cousins are journalists. Um, we, there's a tradition of investigation and inquiry and also being mindful of um, uh, pr- political practices in this country and as they've affected other places in the world. So I think that's given me sort of a um, broad sensibility and analysis of uh, systems change and power. Um, I, I have to say too, right before I started this job, I did an amazing training called Momentum with a thing that's now called the INE Institute, uh, which we've also funded. And that really, uh, I'd say less shaped my beliefs than gave me an analytical container to understand um, a theory of social change that mm-hmm. I could apply in how we fund. Um, but in terms of a belief about, you know, we have a problem yeah. with prison in this country, um, I chalk that up in part just to, you know, as many people, when you start to learn about it, you think, how can this be? Um, but I'd also say, you know, I, I was born in London. Um, my father is from Ireland. And so I've always, in a way, had one foot outside of this country, um, spent a lot of time over there growing up. So um, I've been able to sort of see it as an outside observer and mm-hmm. think, and in a number of ways, not just in criminal justice. That's, that's strange that it's like that. It doesn't have to be like that. That's not in the fundamental nature of things necessarily. So how could we make it different? Um, and particularly, I've just always been driven by this notion that there's way, way, way too many people in prison, and how could we tackle that? When I was in law school, there was no clear path mm-hmm. into that kind of work. Um, there, wasn't, there was work happening, but it wasn't visible to me. So. I thought, I guess I'll be a defense attorney, or maybe I'll do constitutional law and think about these questions. But as I left law school, I did a fellowship, as you know from the bio, at the Vera Institute, did a lot of on-the-ground work in New Orleans, and then uh, had various other jobs litigating. And as I was getting my training, the world was changing such that these uh, questions were on the table um, about what are we doing and do we have to keep doing it that way. Um, So it's been a great privilege actually to develop the skills necessary as the world is becoming the type of place that wants a person like me to make these kinds of changes happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, And can you just give an overview of mass incarceration in the the United States? It's a small topic. Small topic, really simple. It's it's really snappy. Um, So I think as more and more people are coming to understand, there's a truly staggering number of people in jail and prison in the United States. And I, um, for people who are not familiar, you know, jail um, is, generally speaking, a place where people are housed pre-trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, on average, it changes, but let's say 
700,000 people in jails in America on a given day. And because people are cycling in, they're not mostly there for a year or years. They're there for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. Something like 12 million people a year cycle through jails. So there's a lot of people in, and there's a lot of people at the, but year to year who are churning through. We yeah. call it churn. Um, roughly 60% of people in jail are there pretrial. Prison is a place to which people are sentenced. And for the most part, if someone is sentenced to jail, it's for a misdemeanor. If someone's sentenced to prison, it's for a felony. That's not always the case, but it's a good shorthand. Um, most people are in the States, uh, 90% of people who are incarcerated in the United States are there under some state or municipal law, mm -hmm. um, whereas the federal system has about 10%. Um, and they're very, they're sort of different populations. Federal system has a lot of, historically had lots and lots of drug crimes, drug trafficking and so on, or even simpler drug crimes, a lot of immigration It's like charges. the interstate nature of drug trafficking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, or also state actors will federalize the case, they call it, you know, because the federal sentences are longer. Mm. And so these agencies will work in partnership in order to sort of lay heavier charges on someone. If it's a federal charge, it's going to be a more serious yeah. um, uh, situation. It doesn't always mean that crimes in federal court are definitely serious crimes. As when I clerked for a federal judge, I saw plenty of things that seemed to me to be kind of ridiculous. Um, so we got a lot of people inside uh, recent research um, uh, funded by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative found that half of Americans have an immediate family member who is or was incarcerated. It's just incredible. So yes. it's not just, and part of, part of that is because of that churn. About half of people in prison come out every year. Mm -hmm. So half of people coming out, and then jail, it's an even faster churn, as we said. Seven, 12 million-ish people um, filling 700,000-ish beds per year. Um, so a lot of people have been touched by this and even more, you know, have some conviction of, of, of one kind or another, or, um, uh, or rather, I think it's a quarter of Americans have a conviction and then half, um, have a family member. So it's touching a lot of people. Uh, as many know, the application of the laws, um, in, in effect are very racially disproportionate. Yeah. Um, and there's been all kinds of studies, you know, showing basically, People um, engaged in similar conduct or charged with similar offenses get really different treatment, um, and it's more severe at every step of the process. And since there's multiple steps, it diverges more and more and more, like mm -hmm. what your path is going to be. Um, and that's not. There's a big division along the lines of race. There's also, of course, a division on the lines of class. If your father happens to know the judge, or can sort of get you a nice uh, defense attorney or whatever, as a kid, you're 17, you get charged with something, maybe that just goes away, yeah. and no one ever hears about it again versus if you don't have those connections. And so, of course, there's, um, there's disproportionate racial, uh, 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 you know, racially disproportionate incarceration. At the same time, there's, of course, millions of white people churning through the system um, every year as well. Um, and it's gotten really, really big. It's very expensive. It's a drag on the economy. Um, uh, it's kind of a stone around the neck of anyone who has a conviction, makes it really hard to get a job and housing and education and loans and all these sorts of things. Um, so it's a kind of an untenable situation yeah. <laughs> that causes a lot of suffering and trauma and cost. Um, and while we acknowledge, we have to, that um, crime is real, people do bad things, the and, and there needs to be accountability for that. Mm -hmm. The question is whether um, uh, jail and prison are the right options for bringing that kind of accountability and for making people safer. Yeah. And a lot of the people that we're resourcing in my own belief is that um, most of the time the answer is no. And even if you want to incapacitate someone because they're just dead set on lighting their girlfriend on fire, mm -hmm. that's different than punitive incarceration. The idea that holding someone in really terrible conditions um, in a cell is the right appropriate response of society to some kind of thing that's been called an offense. Um, so I'll leave it at that. It's yeah. a vast topic. Yeah, we'll get right into it. Um, <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about what open philanthropy is and what role you're playing in this space? So open philanthropy, or we call it open fill, open fill yes. <laughs> is one of the largest funders in this space. Um, we fund a wide array of groups and efforts with an eye towards maximizing impact, as mm -hmm. EA fans would know. Um, EA being effective altruism. 
Right. <laughs> Effective altruism fans would know that we're about impact. Um, and impact, and our goal, um, which was defined before I got there, and which I'm totally on board with, is that we're, moving, we're measuring our effect in terms of uh, jail and prison years averted. Mm -hmm. So it's specifically about time spent inside or number, number of people inside. That's what we're measuring. That's kind of um, unusual in this space, I find. You might find funders who are committed to abstract concepts like mm -hmm. fairness. Um, but as far as I'm aware, though there's certainly maybe uh, efforts I'm not aware of here, there's not um, been um, a kind of attempt to quantify how much yeah. fairness do we have? How much do we want to increase it by? Mm -hmm. Which you know, requires some level of conceptual kind of thinking to do. Um, and I think sometimes people might shy away from that. But um, I'm really happy and comfortable to be working towards that sort of specific goal. And also mindful of the fact that there are things that matter a lot um, in addition to how many people are inside or how much time they spend inside. I tend to think that if you're correcting the number of people inside, or by correcting, I mean reducing, um, in with an array of strategies that we're deploying, you're also having positive effects on the other things. That is to say, fewer people getting convictions, um, or, um, even if they weren't tending to be incarcerated, the conviction itself is a problem, yep. and so on. Um, so on my team, I play the role of setting strategy. Um, I do the final vetting on all grants and grant write-ups, um, which my team does um, writing and investigation on, and I structure how we spend our time. Mm -hmm. um, I also spend a ton of my time connecting with other donors, particularly new donors, and providing support to them on their criminal justice thinking and grant making. I've written portfolios for people. Um, uh, some donors have put funds into uh, vehicles that I advise or direct. Um, um, and in the EA sense, effective altruism sense, I feel like that's a place where I can do some of the most good mm -hmm. because we're so outward facing. Um, many philanthropic institutions are really focused on achieving their donors' goals or, um, you know, um, having things, I don't know, branded as being their effort. Yeah. Um, and open philanthropy is perfectly happy for um, good to happen through all kinds of channels. Mm -hmm. And so we are um, supported and even encouraged to work with other donors in whatever ways might be helpful um, to them to drive more resources towards things that we think are good. So um, yeah, and I'd say I'll just add too that as people may be familiar, um, Open Philanthropy's framework for cause selection, generally speaking, is to pick things that are important tractable and neglected. Mm -hmm. And then with grants too, we're doing that. Is it, does it really matter? Can it change? And does it not have, you know, is money the thing that's holding it back or the lack of money? Um, it might seem now, and I think you might come back to this later, there's a lot of money slashing around this space. Um, when we came in, that wasn't the case. And I see open philanthropy as having galvanized a lot of that other capital coming yeah. into the space. And um, much of it is taking account of what we're working on and aligning with it. So even though there are more funders in the space now, um, we're, we're playing what I consider at least to be an important role in sort of um, helping to at least propose a strategy that other people might be interested to engage in and so on. Yeah. So can you say, I remember you said the total amount of money spent on criminal justice reform in the nonprofit space and the amount that OpenPhil directs. Do you, do you remember those numbers off the top of your head? So my budget for open fill each year is $25 million. Um, the total amount is hard to calculate, um, and it's growing. It's hard to because some foundations count like multi-year grants in one year, so it's mm -hmm. hard to say like what's going on year to year. I think the last time I tried to figure this out, it's something like maybe, I don't know, over $200 million now. But a lot of that too, you know, depends on the, um, some projects are extremely expensive and very localized. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about um, um, how was the 80 million-ish dollars that were being spent four years ago and now there's 300, that doesn't mean that those things expanded by that much. Some people have picked very specific things to spend a lot of money on. Um, for comparison, so it's grown significantly, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, I'd you know, but when you stack it up against the amount of money spent on other topics, 
in terms of social justice or you know public policy in America, it's still extremely uh, low in my estimation. So the uh, organization in this space with the highest budget that's devoted to criminal justice is still under twenty million dollars a year, or right around twenty, mm -hmm. and then most are well under that. Um, my, I was advised I'm not I haven't checked this, so I'm not sure it's true, but um, someone at least looked it up and told me that the public policy budget of Planned Parenthood is $140 million a year. Wow. So if that's true, you can sort of see this kind of scale, you know, um, and by the way, no, that's fantastic that yeah. that's happening. But like the fact that the money has increased doesn't mean it's anywhere where it needs to be in order to meet, meet the scale of the problem. Yeah. So this would still be considered like a very neglected cause compared to other policy goals in the United States. I'm very biased, but I think so, yes. Yeah, cool, cool. And in, in light of the tractability mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, so when you, um, it's important and it's especially tractable now. So you could imagine front-loading a lot of capital now to take advantage of this moment, um, uh, which I think makes it even more appealing to sort of invest in, because there's a lot of things you can accomplish now you couldn't do 10 years ago and maybe you won't be able to do 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, it's the right time. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to come back to that. But uh, first, the open philanthropy goal within criminal justice reform is to safely reduce incarceration, correct? Mm -hmm. how, how do you determine whether a reform is going to be safe? So first of all, the I am not picking particular policies mm -hmm. and funding like that specific policy change for the most part. Um, um, I say for the most part just because, you know, there can just be exceptions for things, but I don't have something in my mind. Rather, I'm, I have a strategic framework and I'm picking groups that I think are exceptional within that framework and supporting them, and then they will take on work. But that said, um, so in a way, it's not really my choice. But I will also say I haven't yet come across a group that, in my view, is pushing for reforms recklessly without regard to safety. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why we put that into our cause area is to make clear that we're not trying to sort of pursue decarceration with ruthless efficiency yeah. <laughs> um, to the detriment of safety. But I don't. it's not like a check that I have to constantly bring to the work. I think there's a strong consensus in the field that it's not... Um, uh, that the people most affected by incarceration are also, in many cases, in the vast majority of the cases, also the most the people most harmed by crime and violence. Yeah. Um, and no one I know wants to put community safety more at risk. People yeah. are invested in people's lives getting better, which means less incarceration and also more safety. And I don't see those things being intention. Mm -hmm. um, now. Some people would say by they pit safety against incarceration. You either want one or the other. You're either on the side of the person charged with an offense or the victim. What we find, and this is very much the focus of a number of groups we fund, the person charged with a crime today was the victim yesterday yeah. and will be the victim tomorrow. Uh, um, and the victim today was charged with a crime. You know, so it's like these are the same people mm -hmm. um, in these same communities. And so there isn't really that distinction. Moreover... I think we have um, both anecdotal and some you know, research evidence that um, more incarceration is not making people more safe. Um, it's actually harming people. So we think that reducing incarceration is very much conducive to safety, which runs counter to a lot of the existing rhetoric of law enforcement um, and various lawmakers who, again, try to pit them against each other. Yeah. Um, but people will tell you who are experiencing uh, crime and violence that it doesn't necessarily make them feel better or safer that this person was sent to prison for 10 years. Um, it brings them actually no healing and no resources and that person's brother is now stalking them and it just it can be sort of perpetuate harm. Um, so I don't, I, I think we have to put it in, but it's not like it's a tense conversation ever in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like my take on it is that the system is so broken that there's a lot of low hanging fruit out there. And there will be a time where we'll have to make really hard decisions, I think, about like who's getting out, but we can make a lot of like pretty safe reforms in the meantime. Well, I want to challenge you on that um, in a couple of ways. First of all, we tend to 
we, I mean myself and in relationship to leaders in the field, which sort of push back on this notion of brokenness mm -hmm. and implies that you could make a little fixes here and there. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a car that needs like some tweaks to its engine and, and um, little adjustments and the wheel is coming off a little bit. And I think instead we might see um, this sort of mangled thing that in no way resembles anything that we'd want to see. And yeah. in fact was not designed or built or used to serve the purposes it purports to serve. That I agree with. It is not trying to create, all, uh, create safety for communities. It's social control. One could say that. One could also say it's providing safety for the people who control political power selectively. Mm -hmm. um, there's any number of things that it's doing, which in the context of history, you might be well supported to say this is not a thing. Well, some people would say it's not broken. It's functioning perfectly mm -hmm. towards its ends. Maybe it's grabbing in too many people. Maybe that's its problem. Mm -hmm. um, because now, you know, anyone can catch a case, uh, catch a felony, and it's not supposed to be like that. Um, so that's that brokenness thing. And then in terms of low-hanging fruit and this notion of it's okay to get people, you know, charged with drug offenses out of prison, but we'll be like really worried and clutch our pearls when it comes to, um, you know, an armed robbery. Mm -hmm. If you look at that armed robbery, um, and there's many of them that happen, but more often than not, you're going to find a 17 to 24-year-old person, a kid, mm -hmm. who um, when you look at their circumstances, um, you could imagine pretty easily designing different circumstances under which that armed robbery never happens. And any number of things are at play there in terms of um, uh, access to resources in that community, in terms of that person was a crime victim the year before and the police never cared, never solved that case, there's unresolved trauma, there's all of this stuff that's um, leading to harm. And, um, and putting that person in prison for 15 years um, turns out not to be necessary in order to make the community safer. The question is rather, you know, what can we design as an intervention or what do we need to do in this community both to make that less likely to happen and then also to address the situation afterwards so that people are doing well. Um, so restorative justice is a prime example of that which works particularly well in cases of serious harm between people. And we could talk about that more. Um, but it's, uh, um, I don't think that punitive incarceration has any role in our society where you say we are um, we're gonna you, you committed this armed robbery so we'll put you away for a very long time and that's gonna make us safer um, the, again there may be sort of a need for some kind of incapacitation particularly if someone is like just you know explicitly dying to light their girlfriend on fire mm -hmm. or whatever um, you say okay we don't want that person walking around but that's different from punitively trying to do it. That's a more of a sort of, uh, um, that's just incapacitation for safety reasons, the same way if someone, you know, that you might put someone in a mental institution under, under certain circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a question later, but uh, you already touched on it. Like when you look at criminal justice from a utilitarian lens, uh, like an effective altruist would, it seems like there's no role for punishment, really. It's like deterrent and rehabilitation are the only two things that I can see. Yet the desire for punishment, retribution, the focus on like what people deserve seems to drive a lot of the rhetoric and like a lot of people's intuitions around this. And like, I noticed this in myself. Um, you know, I think that in a utopian society, we'd still have Jeff Sessions in his own little prison, but it's like a tree and he's making marijuana edibles for people. And like, he's a little Keebler elf. And like, that's, that's like the only person. Um, but like, it still doesn't strike, do anybody any good, except for maybe the, the consumers in that case. Yeah, if we're oriented towards how to make the most good, we would do things really differently, really differently, like a lot, up, down, and sideways. Um, so I would say I agree, I agree that the state should not punish. I don't think it works, and I think it is in opposition to the interest of maximizing safety in the future. Mm -hmm. Punishment causes trauma. We know that trauma causes more harm. Um, and it's also expensive. And the person you put away has a kid, and now the kid is more likely to be incarcerated. So you're not matching your response to any kind of model of making the world overall better. Um, and I want to be clear there too, you know, since you mentioned utilitarianism, I don't mean to say, um, oh, keeping the person home from prison might be bad for the victim, but it's great for everyone else. Mm -hmm. I think there too, um, when people have asked 
um, survivors of crime, you know, in studies and surveys in a comprehensive way, um, do you support rehabilitation over punishment? They say, yeah, resoundingly, yes. Yeah. Um, because they know that in the vast majority of the cases, the person is going to come home from prison. Like 95%, right? Right. Do I want them to have been under horrendous conditions and getting, you know, further and further away from the possibility of ever having a job and so on and so forth? Or do I want some sort of intervention that, um, or some response um, that's more healthy than that? Now, people also rightfully have a... or desire for accountability. Mm -hmm. um, I think people can respond negatively to the notion of, oh, not much happened to them or slap on the wrist. This is where um, interventions like restorative justice can come in, which are totally accountability oriented. How do we ensure that the person who caused the harm truly understands the consequences of what they've caused, authentically apologizes, and then remedies that harm in ways that are meaningful to the person who was harmed? Do you need restitution? Do you need me to go to an anger violence class? Do you need me to apologize to your child for almost you know, debilitating their parent? What's actually needed? And then people who go through that process will say, that served me much better. Mm -hmm. So we can do accountability without punishment, which parents know. Yeah. Um, I have two small kids, and I can tell you from my own experience, uh, experience Punishment, when I have punished, it comes from anger. Like, I'm so frustrated. I told you not to do that. You did it. You know, um, go to bed early or no dinner or no videos. It's a sense of like, I just need you to feel a little pain right now, even if I'm not uh, like physically harming them. I need you to suffer a little bit because you have made me suffer. Um, so I've experienced that many times, like any parent, you know, acts out of frustration. But when I'm in a calm frame of mind and thinking, how do I actually interact with my kid so that our household is um, happy together. Yeah. And so that the kid in the future is gonna behave in a more well-socialized way with our family. It's not through punishment. It's through um, a number of other practices that I'm not qualified to really summarize here in any professional way, but it's through talking. It's through helping them to really understand what they caused. It's through giving them ways to repair the harm so that they can feel like a good person and act in a way as a good person, then be rewarded for that and get socialized into that. Now, I somewhat hesitate to bring this up because of course, you know, I'm a parent of a child and I'm not trying to say that people who, are, you know, who commit crimes are children and we're their parents and you get into this weird kind of patronizing thing. But the point is just to say that punishment, many of us experience in our lives how it doesn't work and yet we do have these intuitions yeah. that um, that was awful. We should punish. But it's coming from a point of anger and frustration, not necessarily something that's really well honed and geared and well informed to do more good or to create a happier, healthier society or community in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see this tension mostly on the left where, you know, I'd say like prison abolition or like, you know, more radical uh, criminal justice reform strategies are, are most popular. There's also this like, belief that like Henry Kissinger should be like hanged right right and I think you could make actually like a deterrent case that like people like Henry Kissinger should be I, I hate to say punished but like something should happen to set the example that like hey you can't you know kill millions of people abroad and like get away with it but the reality is like that's the world we live in right well maybe now. he should have to go work in a Vietnamese orphanage for example yeah. like you can and being held accountable can be a deeply uncomfortable, difficult experience. Mm -hmm. It's not that we shy away from putting people into an uncomfortable, difficult situation. It's that that should be a productive thing instead of a reactionary, let's make you suffer kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it is hard. It gets complicated too around people who are on the one hand calling for reducing the jail and then the next hand they're calling to send the police officer who shot and killed someone to prison. Yeah. And But there are you know, there's a diversity of viewpoints on that topic, but um, some of the people that I think are clearest thinking on this will say, no, we don't want to send that officer to prison. What we're saying is prison doesn't work. Yeah. Now, it's deeply unfair that the prosecutor walks free, I'm not the prosecutor, the police officer walks free, whereas the other, you know, kid, my kid is in prison for 20 years and he yeah. didn't even kill anyone. So that's unfair. But the way to correct that isn't to ratchet everything towards prison. Yeah, Instead, it's to say, let's take a different path. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be like with the uh, Brock Turner, the Stanford exactly. Summer case. It's like there's this desire for more punishment. And it's like, well, it's not that we want 
the criminal justice system to work for everybody the way it works for you know marginalized communities right is that we want it to like actually work right. and to work like evenly across all groups of people and well this is a good example too and it's not something i'm particularly knowledgeable on so i'll just allude to it there's a lot of sexual assault on campus a lot of it goes unreported mm -hmm. in part because people you know when they do report are not uh, met with compassion and responsivity, but people just telling them to shush yeah. or they something bad happened to them, but they also don't want to quote, destroy someone's life or their friends are all saying, don't destroy someone's life. So the existence of these like very intense responses for some people can dissuade a whole lot of other people from even reporting or getting any kind of, um, accountability process that works for them and any kind of healing. Yeah. So I think, um, we have to think about the fact that something like half of victims of crime full stop do not report what shows up in our courts is like a piece of a piece of a piece of people and if you want to ask well is this working or how well served are people you have to look at all the people impacted by crime and violence and say how's that going mm -hmm. and is there are there components of the way that we're responding that are making it much harder for a whole section of people to actually uh, achieve any kind of um uh compensation or accountability or healing. Yeah, yeah, sort of related. There's this great infographic showing wage theft, so employers not paying their employees compared to all other types of like robbery, armed robbery, like stealing, whatever. And it just totally swamps everything else. And it's like, well, if you analyze criminal justice as like actually promoting fairness, equality, whatever, makes no sense. But if you analyze it as like classes, social control, like a more left-wing perspective, it like starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah, and people just get used to not looking at that kind of thing. They're really um, accustomed to thinking about crime as a certain type of street crime yeah. that is showing up on their TV sets and not thinking about the full range of stuff. Um, so yes, I mean, all kinds of lack of accountability for people who are stealing money from workers at all levels. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we met through effective altruism and I wanna make uh, an effective altruist case against focusing on criminal justice reform. Okay. And like, I don't personally agree with this case, but um, I agree with you that this is a neglected issue, um, getting less so, which is a good thing. Um, I think it's tractable. We've seen like federal reforms, reforms at the state and local levels getting more popular. But when you compare the scale to other effective altruism causes, like there are 3.5 billion people living on less than $5.50 per day. There are over 100 billion farmed animals right now. And in the future, there could be literally trillions of conscious people or whatever living really happy lives. And you know, there are 2.3 million people, I think, incarcerated in the United States right now. So like, how do you make the argument that this is worth investing in compared to all the other causes that we could care about? So I'm gonna give you a short answer, mm -hmm. which is that I think <clears throat> Holden Karnofsky, who runs OpenFill, has made uh, has answered this well in his cause selection framework mm -hmm. post, um, which is up on our website. So that's sort of above my level in the sense of making those uh, making like a those cross judgments. cross cause yeah. comparison. Yeah. I, the, one other thing I'd say is that we're always um, looking to invest proportionately to the return that we might get. Um, so, you know, open or philanthropy and through GiveWell, I'm pretty sure, I don't know the numbers, but I, I'm pretty sure we spend a lot more money on questions of global poverty where we feel like uh, our resources can make, do the most good and be mm -hmm. effective and impactful um, than on criminal justice reform. So there's a sort of some amount of proportionality, but I think something that Holden talks about, um, uh, I, I mean, I really would just encourage people to read the post, but one part of it is, is um, um, I don't think he describes it this way, but there's a certain amount of hedging. Like you could say, the only thing that matters is the long-term future because there are billions upon billions of lives at stake. And yeah. so if you can prevent the end of the human species, you should do only that. Except that's really hard to predict and you might be wrong. And so you, you want to hedge and do like short-term, you know, welf uh, welfare of human beings. And then you might also say, um, well, it may be in ways that we can't totally understand and see that impacting U.S. policy has these sort of greater ripple effects beyond the incarcerated population, and I would also say um, into mainstream politics yeah. because of the role that um, 
crime and justice has played in our politics and has, which you see recently, you know, uh, Trump's tweet, build the wall, crime will fall. This idea of this like scary other is coming for your stuff, so do what I say to do, um, is of interest mm -hmm. to people beyond simply the question of the number of people in jail and prison. So there's arguments I could make for it being bigger than it seems. Um, Though I really would just defer to Holden as to how he wants to think about that because he thinks really, really hard about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just one example off the top of my head of how this matters is uh, if people in Florida who were convicted of a felony had the right to vote, George W. Bush would not have been the president in all likelihood. And then the war in Iraq might not have happened. And like we might have acted on climate change. And there's all these downstream effects of like our society not treating people the way they deserve to be treated. Um, I'm falling into deserving language again. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think um, I believe we need to build a humane and just society uh, for the future to be good. And taking steps towards that now is like a really important part in ensuring that we survive and thrive going forward. Yeah. And you might want to be always paying attention to who is most marginalized mm -hmm. in any given social structure or political structure. What's happening to them? What role is their marginalization playing? and reinforcing negative activities of the structure. And so if you attend to that marginalized group um, and uh, build the political power of that group, make them less marginalized economically and politically, you could be having an impact. I mean, this is just in a more abstract way describing what you're saying yeah. on, on the whole piece of it. Um, yeah. um, and last, just one more thing, as I mentioned before, uh, 2.3 million-ish people incarcerated on any given day, um, many, many millions more who have been incarcerated in the past. And then, as we learned, half of America has a close family member who is currently or recently incarcerated, which has a lot of negative effects. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another way in which it's bigger than it might appear. Although, even just on the face of it, it's pretty big. Yeah, totally, totally agreed. Um, I spoke with uh, J.C. Reese uh, on the podcast as well, and he wrote The End of Animal Farming. And his whole project is expanding the moral circle, um, the circle of our concern to all sentient creatures. And he thinks that, you know, farmed animal welfare and criminal justice reform are actually like the most important causes because of this. Um, do you see any connection between those two? Totally. I don't get to talk to Lewis, my colleague who works mm -hmm. on farm animal welfare enough. Um, uh, I think at the level you described, they're very much connected. Practically speaking, our work hasn't intersected at all, mm -hmm. um, in part too, because I mean, as people may know, Lewis does a lot of corporate support of corporate campaigning, and um, uh, I'm not actually up to speed on how much his work focuses on getting people to develop a different view of animals versus, regardless of their views, we're just going to make sure that many fewer animals are harmed. Yeah. Um, but the project of Incur uh, expanding people's uh, moral concern is definitely um, simpatico across these different areas. Um, and I think probably a similar challenge in these two areas is that if you truly open yourself up to the level of suffering that's being perpetuated in your name or with your economic support or by your government, it can be pretty overwhelming, I think, especially yeah. if a person doesn't have a way to help. Um, and so it's, you kind of wall yourself off from that and come up with many reasons for why it's okay. You know, I just don't think about it or like, it tastes so good. I couldn't mm -hmm. do without it. Or, um, you play mind games with yourself in order to not really let that sink in. Um, I think that there are, however, when people feel like they can do something about it, my own personal intuition and my own experience has been that you actually get this huge leap in support for the change because people were ignoring it. They didn't want to look at it. It's too painful. I can't do anything about it anyway. Just ignore. But if you can do something about it, suddenly you have lots of people rushing over to say, yeah, yeah, we want actually that change to happen. Um, so that's some of the more exciting parts of this work, all of which is exciting, but it's this idea of what would it take to hit a tipping point where you achieve cascading declines, yeah. returns on the investment uh, uh, in this work, where things start to reinforce each other positively, not just because momentum is catching on or you want enough state, state houses, that's important, but because people say, um, 
all of a sudden it feels possible and then it turns out people actually really want to do that thing. Um, yeah. So I think you can imagine support coming from like nowhere, so to speak, like, oh, America is so punitive or America, this and that. Um, but I feel like there is a, a huge potential support for a major change, um, which we're seeing expressed in certain ways. In other ways, we haven't yet seen it in part because we don't have the infrastructure to absorb that interest. So I went to Harvard Law School, so I know just a little bit about there. Um, when I was there, there were some number of, there was the cadre of people who cared about this topic and it wasn't like a huge thing. Mm -hmm. I graduated in 07. Now, my friend who directs one of the criminal justice programs there says, every event is standing room only. Well, wow. People are showing up because they, it's, it's catching. It's a sense of like, oh wow, things are happening. Something can change, you know, like this is exciting. How can I get in? Um, so that's both a signal of the times we're in, but a challenge because we need to, in my view, figure out uh, techniques to absorb that interest. Yeah. There aren't going to be like 800,000 like professional jobs in this work, um, but there are ways to give people tools to um, invest their time and energy and interest in productive ways to help move communities and states and the country in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. This seems to be one of those topics that once people learn about it, like farmed animal suffering, you can't really go back. Right. It's, I remember reading about it in high school and, and just being horrified um, and was like, nobody's really talking about this. And in college, there was no group dedicated to it. So I decided to start one with a friend of mine. And, you know, the, when we first started, there was a lot of initial interest and then it like, didn't really catch on too much. But then like people talking to them at Club Fest, even like two or three years ago, everyone's aware that there's a problem. At the very least, it's like seeped into the culture. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that changed so recently? That's like a fair question and an impossible one for me to answer. <laughs> you know, you can point to this is and that's. Mm -hmm. You could say there's a certain saturation. If half of Americans have a close family member in jail or in prison, at a certain point, uh, that starts to just be enough people just have experienced contacted with it in some way that they're like, you know what? I don't think uncle James is like a terrible person who deserves to be in solitary confinement for 30 years. Yeah. Like he did something bad, but that's not right. And when you get critical mass of people who've had some kind of proximate experience, like maybe things flip over. We also had, of course, Michelle Alexander's book, the new Jim Crow, yeah. um, which caught on, Obviously, there was latent interest, otherwise it wouldn't have caught on, but then it got many, many more people to think about this topic. Um, I think that it's also one that can be understood through different political lenses and be attractive. So from one lens, it's a social justice issue. From another lens, it's government excess mm -hmm. or what have you. Like you can understand it in that way. So and I, of course, I think there are multiple issues where that's the case, but they've been like really written in stone. If you're, these are politics, this is what you believe. If these are politics, this is what you believe. On this issue, frankly, um, people across the political spectrum were terrible on this issue for a long time. Democrats, Republicans, everyone was just bad. I mean, the crime like, bill in the 90s implicates so many of exactly. the Democrats in power now. Exactly, in part, I think some of them we're cynically trying to um, incarcerate swaths of people and others, I think, authentically felt that uh, uh, cities were unsafe and people were being harmed and you needed to do something. Yeah. And the tool at hand was prison, so let's um, show people that we're serious and blah, 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 we're gonna put you in prison. And then it turns out that was a mistake. And I think many of those same people who would have advocated for the crime bill in the 90s now are really sorry that they did, but with the information they had at the time, they thought that it was actually gonna help. Um, so, you know, whence the tipping point, I'm not quite sure. I'll also say that ever since I've been in this work, ever since the window seemed to be opening, like even from back in 2012 when I was at the ACLU, we have this window. There's been this anxiety, like the window may close, like how long will the window be open? Quick, quick, do what you can. Um, so now it's seven years later and the window seems to actually still be getting bigger. Yeah. Which is still unnerving, like will it collapse at some point? We've got to work as hard and as fast as we can. I work 
a lot of hours, and so does everyone I know in the field. Pe people are passionately devoted to this and urgently devoted to this because we want to get as much done as we can before conditions change. I think probably that like the window of criminal justice reform, my current thinking, which could change, I don't think it's going to collapse, but I think it will start to solidify, solidify into certain channels of possibility mm -hmm. um, that may be limiting. Our work now is in part to like set what those channels are so that the impulse to do something, quote unquote, about this issue is like going in what we would agree is like a good direction instead of a not good direction. For example, you could get a lot of people out of jail and prison and put them on ankle monitors and surveil their every move, which I don't think would be a good result and many other people don't think so either. And so, so it'd be like progress over the status quo in like a very limited sense, right? Yes and no. I mean, if you think that there, there's a sort of, um, physical suffering and family separation that happens to incarceration, that wouldn't be the case there. But there's also this sort of deep harm to a person's dignity and self-worth and ability to move freely around the world, uh, about their world, and to seek employment and to be treated as a regular person and to, um, and so on and so on, that continues to be bad under yeah. that situation. And um, that is still very harmful. So you could say, if we're at a 10 out of 10 harm now, is mass surveillance of everyone, like, does it take us down to a three, so harmful, but like way better? Or is it, yeah. does it take it down to kind of like an eight? Arguable questions. Yeah. Um, but I think that for people doing the work now who both want to reduce incarceration and want to avoid mass surveillance and other sorts of things, we have the space right now to shape the work in a way to try to avoid that result which may not be the case in five or 10 years. So there's different types of windows, I guess, mm -hmm. like the window for concern and change on this issue, and then for also determining the terms on which we make the change. Yeah. Yeah, I guess my worry is that there's a lot of focus right now on the most sympathetic people who are in prison. So there's the talk of the non-non-nons, non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual offenders. And aside from like the difficulty of like, Violent and nonviolent offenders can like mean many different things, and there are situations where a violent offender would not be violent in our eyes, and vice versa. Um, if you actually look at the number of people in prison and, and what they're there for, um, it's hard to cut the number of people incarcerated in half without looking at murderers and people who have committed violent crimes by like any definition. And so I, I worry that we kind of coalesce around like this. The problem is not that you know anybody's in prison and suffering these terrible conditions. The problem is that we put the wrong people there, and there's mm -hmm. too many of them. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as like a, a risk? Can you say more clearly what the risk is? I guess that we like think we've solved the problem. Um, so like, if we get the wrong people out, then we've solved it. Or if we declare victory too early and like then reform. Like there's this opening, right? People are like open to change. Mm -hmm. But if we reform like this consensus around like, okay, we're still going to incarcerate people for like 50 years, but only for like this class of crimes and we're not going to do drugs anymore. Um, like it could just further entrench the system where people are like suffering and it's not making anybody any safer. Yes. Um, I think that's a risk that people bring up a lot. I think that if we are keeping alive this question of whether it's useful to punish through incarceration or whether that's not useful, that is going to apply to mm -hmm. a wide range of offenses. And you don't have to say, some people say, we have, to, we have to talk about violent offenses without which we won't make the change. I don't think we necessarily have to talk about violent offenses per se. Rather, we need to orient ourselves to this project in a way that's not what you described before, which is this idea of low-hanging fruit. Mm. Which, by the way, could tend to belittle the harm that is caused by, for example, someone who's heavily addicted to drugs causes absolute misery for their family. Yeah. Um, not always, but you will hear stories, you know, um, of, of, the, of the drag that that creates on that family. So it's not like that's without harm. It's not like it's a not a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, uh, if the person, you know, any number of reasons, you know, a person who's heavily addicted to drugs and not particularly well able to function. 
leaving aside people who are highly functional when they're addicted to drugs, which Carl Hart at Columbia has written a lot about and is a population we don't think about enough. But so for so so that is a point where we want to perhaps intervene and provide support, not punitive incarceration though, but we don't yeah. want to say it's like not a problem. We have this tendency to equate the spectrum of punishment from probation to short jail time to longer jail time to prison to longer prison time as somehow mapping onto how seriously we take something, how bad we think it is. So you'll see people arguing for increasing the sentence for something because we should take it more seriously. Why is you know, domestic assault in New York, I believe, um, but let's just assume for the sake of argument, is a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. And you might say, well, that's a really serious thing. It should be a felony because it's serious. And that is a logical argument that we need to break down. The question is, domestic assault is a serious thing. How do we act in a way to reduce the likelihood of it happening and to improve the outcomes for people who are victims of that? Um, not how do we flex our punishment tools more aggressively in order to show kind of performatively that we care about it. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing I, I'll just point out on the side, just so we're aware, statistics, for example, put out by the fantastic Prison Policy Initiative, which has a great pie chart, mass incarceration, the whole pie, and shows you what percentages of the total prison population, what are the charged offenses. Mm -hmm. um, um, their work is fantastic. That's basically the best you can do right now. But what I will tell you is some significant number of those people were actually let out on probation or parole and then returned because of violations. Mm -hmm. When I was at the ACLU, the states we had statistics for showed that 30% of prison admissions on average were for technical or were for violations. Yeah. Yeah. Some technical, you missed 10 meetings or some like you got arrested which by itself for a low-level offense wouldn't have been a thing, but because you were on probation or parole became a big thing. So I don't know what those numbers are, but I think we just need to keep that in mind that like you might be saying, oh, the vast number of people in jail and prison are there on uh, uh, violent offenses, but many of them were let out and went back in. So if we, yeah. if we felt comfortable enough to let people out once, like, you know, then we can sort of, it becomes less perhaps of a challenge to imagine um, reducing that population. I do think finally on this that society shifts in its notion of what it finds very threatening. Um, drugs and drug use at various times are considered especially threatening and detrimental to the social order and really bad and terrible. In this time that's not a particularly popular opinion. Yeah. People are more likely to be like what's the big deal like particularly around marijuana but also other drugs like you know, it's your body, consume the thing. If you're not like running around harming people as a result, like it's cool. Mm -hmm. That's not been the social consciousness in the past and it is now. So drugs are less of a threat. So let's like, now it becomes low, low hanging fruit, so to speak. It wasn't in the past. Um, so I think we have to sort of recognize the way in which we're saying prison is correct for the things that are most threatening to us, which look and act like this. And that kind of shifts over time what that is. Um, and realizing that we're using it, uh, this incredibly destructive and traumatic and expensive tool as kind of like a social, you know, soothing ourselves into thinking that we are going to be okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and that if we sort of investigate all of that and also attend to what are the interventions we can make to make communities actually safer, in many ways we sort of start to realize prison is the least effective, most expensive, most harmful thing you can possibly do in any instance. Mm -hmm. It should be the last resort. If someone cannot be, if, if, communities are if a community is immediately threatened because someone is just dead set on harming people, you know, you might want to incapacitate that person, but for most things, it's just causing wreckage. Yeah, I, I agree. Mm -hmm. um, would you call yourself an abolitionist? I know some people don't like labels, but no. you're, what you're describing sounds fairly close. I would say that it's good to talk about prison abolition 
as far-fetched as it may seem mm -hmm. because it gets us thinking in a useful way, what would we have to do to make this seem desirable? What else would have to change in our society in order for us to achieve sufficient support for abolishing prisons? A lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there'd have to be major changes to, you know, mental health infrastructure and substance use infrastructure and housing and just lifting the lower economic end of the spectrum up. And if we can work towards those things, I think at the same time, we'll be likely successfully cutting incarceration. Um, so I think it's good to talk about it. And I think it's good to say, I want to play my part in creating a world where prisons um, are not necessary, not just a world, a country. Because as you know, in some countries, I'm not familiar with a country that's quote abolished prison, but Norway in Northern Europe, Sweden, they like, basically don't use it yeah. at all because a lot of other things are true where, and even prison as it exists is like, looks so different from what we have yeah. that it's unre it's like the moon. You're yeah. like, what? <laughs> um, where are the walls? Yeah. Where are the guns? Where are the guard towers? Where's the everything? Like none of those things are present. Um, so they have a different relationship and a very rehabilitative um, attitude to say, this person is coming home. How do we prepare them to come home and do well in society? What skills and tools and healing do they need in order to contribute well when they come home? And that's not the orientation in this country. Um, so I, that, that's, that's what I'll say about that, that I, I'm working towards a world in which we can uh, imagine abolishing prison. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when a lot of people hear that, they respond to a straw man, which is like, we should just let everybody out right now, which I think we would agree it'd be probably fairly destructive for people who want to set their girlfriend on fire, get the chance to do it. And there are people in those situations that will be immediate threats to the people around them if they're released. But that's because we don't have like the connective tissue and the other like social programs that we would need to actually provide for people and like obviate the conditions that create crime in the first place. And then we have to think also intergenerationally. I think this is, not, this is sort of related to what you were just saying, but people will talk about upstream and downstream. Um, you didn't ask this question, but others have, you know, uh, okay, I think I can see it's important, you know, this person who's 24 and prison is terrible, but what if we just went upstream and did early childhood education? Wouldn't that be way better? And I'd say, huge fan of early childhood education. I don't think it's a particularly neglected area. It may not be very tractable, but also it's a mistake to think of just this one person, you know, Joe Smith, and like what we should have done 18 years ago. Joe Smith, in many cases, has a kid of preschool age. You know what's really bad for that kid is him going to prison. Mm. Really bad in terms of health outcomes, in terms of their own likelihood of becoming incarcerated themselves, in terms of vulnerability to eviction. It's it's bad news. Um, now sometimes Joe is immediately a threat to his family, and that's a, like a different situation. Yeah. But so the kids, the the upstream downstream, it's all happening at the same time of people in communities, and you have these like negative feedback loops of incarceration, destabilizing families, destabilizing communities. You know, in certain highly impacted communities, like everyone on the block has been to prison or is in prison or like, you know, it's going to prison. Like it's just, it's so saturated. This yeah. It's like hyper incarceration. And um, it makes it really hard. I think, you know, when other sorts of interventions are working, oh, let's work on the school. Let's work on their health and their housing. Why is it not working? I'm like, well, maybe you should look at the fact that half the community is in and out of prison. And if we would stop, you know, metaphorically speaking, bombing that community, then you might be able to rebuild. But it's hard to rebuild when you are literally destroying it every day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just reminded of in college, I volunteered at the Prisoners Legal Services of New York, and I was doing a very like low-level thing, which is reading requests for legal representation from people incarcerated. And these were all the ones where they were not able to provide it. And so it was really sad. I mean, you're just reading sometimes handwritten um, or typed up things where it's like this person probably can't read based on like the, the grammar and like they were dictating it to somebody. And it's just like you see this and it's this is in the wealthiest country in history. And it's just like we've clearly failed this group of people. Like I don't care what that person did. They never really had a chance in the first place. And it was a really depressing job. And I don't know. I think if people who were really critical of reform efforts experienced something like that and like actually saw what it was like for the people inside, they would have a very different take. Well, yeah. So one of, um, 
a question people often ask is, what can you do? Mm-hmm. One of the most transformative, perhaps the most transformative people uh, experience that a person can have um, is to visit a prison. Yeah. And after you visit a prison, to bring someone else and then to bring someone else. This is really important work. Um, there is a person in California called Scott Budnick who was a producer on the Hangover series, a very, very successful movie series, who has devoted a huge percentage of his time in life over the past several years, and at some points full-time, um, to uh, working on prison reform, particularly as it concerns to young people. And he has spent a lot of time visiting prison and bringing people in to visit prison. And then when they visit and have a transformational experience, they then share that with others because it immediately smashes a lot of preconceptions that people have. They'll say, oh, the, but the guys were so great and they were yeah. so nice. Turns out they're not like a whole bunch of monsters, even if some of them did monstrous things. Yeah. When you talk to a person and you can see their humanity and they're speaking to you like a normal person, you have a cognitive pro- challenge that, that, that people tend to sort of um, uh, experience around like, but this isn't what I imagined it was. Well, what else am I wrong about or what else needs to change? Um, so visiting a prison and getting proximate is huge. How could somebody do that? It's a good question. I think it really um, it depends. Mm-hmm. You know, so like a place like San Quentin, very close to San Francisco, has many different opportunities, programs to volunteer for, ways to go in. Um, uh, I think it really varies place to place. And I am not, I do not happen to be familiar with what the practices are in prisons and in United um, in New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I've been thinking about more recently: how to create tools for people to um, plug in. And one of them would be to sort of figure that out: what are the technicalities of that, and what and what might be a way for for someone to visit or, or to volunteer. Yeah, that, that'd um, be a great website. Like plug in a zip code. Like how do I find right. a prison near me I can visit? Right, and there are things, you know, for people in university, there are many schools, or if you don't have one, you can start one, a uh, prison education project or a tutoring project of some kind where you can, to your point, a lot of people um, are illiterate or, you know, or or are not, but are just very hungry for learning, and you can really help people a lot, and then you also just see and learn so much. Yeah, I I did one of those in college, and uh, one, the, the guys were just really friendly people, and, like, you're getting a selected portion this was in a maximum security you know facility and i think my favorite student had a teardrop tattoo and was in there for the majority of his life like he had already lived the majority of his life in prison and was a brilliant amazing student did all the readings was far more motivated than 98 percent of the people i knew at cornell and uh it just it really is a transformative experience so let me just say just a couple other yeah. quick things because we're closing in yeah. our time you know in terms of people interested in this topic i can just recommend to folks um the Justice in America podcast is awesome. If you like podcasts, it's in its second season right now. It's uh, run by Josie Duffy, who's fantastic. And she works with Clint Smith, I think. I'm not totally sure of his last name, sorry. Um, but Justice in America podcast is fantastic. There's also The Appeal. The Appeal is like a news site um, that has a lot of great reporting. And you can go on their website, theappeal.org, I'm pretty sure and sign up for their newsletter. And they provide a pretty like in-depth and interesting newsletter each day profiling a topic of interest. And so that's a good way to kind of get up to speed on what's going on. Open Philanthropy does a newsletter um, that takes, uh, drawn from all our grantees newsletters. Um, And we have an archive on the website. If you go to Open Philanthropy and Criminal Justice Reform on the CJR page, you scroll down, you can see the archive of newsletters if you wanna read stuff about our grantees, which I think can be interesting. And then um, in terms of uh, books, if you haven't read The New Jim Crow, like you have to read it. Even if you think you know stuff, I've, I mean, I read it years ago, but when I read it, I already knew a lot and I learned a lot. Yeah. Another book that's much less well-known that I think is fantastic um, and more, uh, I don't want to say more analytical. Uh, Michelle Alexander is very analytical, but it, it's, a, it's a great book. It's called The Collapse of American Criminal Justice William Stutz, by William Stutz, yeah, who happened yeah. to be my criminal procedure professor. Wasn't he conservative as well? Yes, he was, a, he was a evangelical Christian conservative guy, um, super brilliant. 
and look tracks things like the evolution of the northern justice system, the southern yeah. justice system, looks at why you don't see mass incarceration of Irish immigrants in Boston, even though they were marginalized. Why did that happen? Uh, spoiler, in part because they managed to work their way into um, the police officer service jobs. Yeah. And so if you're policing your own community, like you're not going to police yourselves into yeah. jail and prison. You're going to say, ah, Billy, he's a good kid, you know, talk to the mom or whatever, which is not what happens when the police and the people being overseen are from different backgrounds or classes or races or whatever. Interesting. Um, so I think that's like a really interesting book um, and uh, nerdy and cool. Um, and then there are, uh, there's Ear Hustle also is a podcast out of San Quentin. Ear Hustle? Ear Hustle. And then there's a whole bunch of movies. People like The 13th, The House I Live In was several years ago. I think it's really good. Um, and I could go on. But just for yeah. if people want to know a place to start, these are great places. Well, thank you so much, Chloe. Any other calls to action for our listeners? Um, I think that, uh, again, you can sort of I, uh, implicitly or explicitly, you know, vouch for the organizations that we fund. Um, although some of them are earlier stage things that may not work, mm -hmm. just to be clear. Um, that's part of how we fund is because it's a hit space giving in, in some instances. This could be fantastic, it might not work. But um, there's a bet on leadership that's going on in, in each of those grants. So looking at our organizations, if you're thinking about where could I put money, um, uh, you can check those out. Um, I think uh, in depending on your city, giving to your local bail fund can be good. Like. Uh, the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, the Bronx Freedom Fund in New York, um, the Massachusetts Bail Fund is fantastic, the Chicago Bail Fund, there's these bail funds around the country. It's not every single place. And this helps bail people out of jail, correct? Yes. And it's like not like you just put the money in and it goes away, right? Like it's recycled. It re it's recycled, yeah. So it de really depends place to place on yeah. exactly how it works, but how it's supposed to work, generally speaking, is when the bail bail is put up, money is paid you know, to the court, and the person does in fact show up for trial, then the bail is returned with absent minus some administrative costs and mm -hmm. so on. And so you should be able, that dollar should be able to be spent like, you know, 15 times or whatever, which is um, perhaps attractive. Yeah. Um, now bail funds are a tactic. They're not a solution to this problem. But if you're thinking, I have, you know, $50, how can I help? The last thing I'll plug in that sense too, um, for particularly, you know, I mean, give as much as you can, but uh, it, this is a thing that is effective for small dollars, which isn't always the case is um, Real Justice PAC is, um, it's a political organization. Mm -hmm. This is not C3 money. It's not nonprofit tax exempt money. It's political money, but this PAC works on prosecutor elections. Mm. Um, and I think that they've been great. Um, they've been very active in races like the St. Louis district attorney race, where we have a person who's a reformer who just got into office in Boston. They were very active in Dallas. We have a new person. They were very active and Larry Krasner, who's more famous than the rest. They were very, very active in his race and in yeah. fact, put a staff person in on his campaign. It's one of the so, bright lights of, of the last exactly. years. So, if, so, so if someone's interested in that prosecutor stuff and wants to connect to it, you can give to real justice pack. And then as a donor, even if you just give $1, you're included on their list. And then I think, I don't know how frequently they're doing them right now. I think it's more during election season. They do regular phone calls and people ask questions. Um, it's kind of can be like a fun way to get involved. Cool. Cool. Well, Chloe, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters. But every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.